Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Play ball! It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back on this episode of Conversation with Randy Wilkins, the director of The Captain. That's the seven-part film about Derek Jeter, a look at Derek's life and career just like The Last Dance about Michael Jordan two years ago. The Captain features plenty of interviews with Jeter, his friends, teammates, family, and other people who were there along the way, including the media that covered him. Yeah, I do appear in this film a few times along the way. I've also watched some previews of the first few episodes. I think Yankee fans for sure will enjoy it a great deal and others will appreciate the peek into Jeter's life. The first episode airs Monday, this coming Monday, July 18th on ESPN, 10 p.m., right after the All-Star Home Run Derby, with the remaining episodes scheduled to run every Thursday from July 21st to August 11th. They're also going to be available to stream on ESPN+. Randy Wilkins is a filmmaker who was born and raised a Yankees fan from the Bronx. His two-decade working relationship with Spike Lee brought him into this project, which is over a year in the making. In this conversation with Randy, we talk about the roots of this film, the process of making it, and the different parts of Derek Jeter's life and career that come into brighter focus along the way here. Here's my conversation with the director of The Captain, Randy Wilkins. Randy, I guess one of the first things that they tell you is don't ever meet your heroes. I know you're a Yankee fan and how much you uh, admired Derek Jeter during his career. So as you got to meet him and know him during this process, how do you feel about that statement? Don't meet your heroes. I think this is one of the rare instances where uh, it was cool to meet your hero. Um, it was worth meeting your hero. And uh, yeah, I think everything that you hear about Derek is true. All the positive things. Uh, there's some things I learned about him, but yeah, it's absolutely a situation where it was cool to meet your hero for once. All right. I'm going to get into the making of this and some of the details of it in a minute, but um, I guess the story is that Derek went to Spike Lee about this and Spike couldn't do it. And he recommended you. How did you end up first getting connected with Spike? I know you've worked on some of his other projects. How did that relationship build for you? So my relationship with Spike is longstanding. I've pretty much known him my entire adult life. I've known him close to 20 years. Uh, I was um, working as a filmmaker in residence at my undergrad, uh, Franklin and Marshall in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And uh, Spike came as uh, a guest of the, of the school. So he was there for a day or two. It was split up over a couple months. Uh, and I ended up being Spike's host since I was like, the filmmaker guy on campus at that point. I had graduated, but I was working there. Okay. And um, Spike uh, 
you know, I, I gave Spark a documentary I had made before he got there. And, you know, I asked him next steps. I mean, I had the access to him. So, uh, and I was trying to figure out if I wanted to actually pursue filmmaking. At that point, I had just gotten into it by accident. And um, he said I needed to learn how to make narrative films. And I was so green that I didn't know what a narrative film was. I didn't really, I didn't even understand that term. And um, he said, well, if you want a recommendation at NYU, graduate film, I'll give you one. And I obviously took him up on that. I eventually got into NYU. I was waitlisted, actually. So it took me a while to get in. And then, um, yeah, Spike basically took me under his wing. Uh, my first job with him officially was as an editorial PA on Inside Man back in 2004. And then I rose through the ranks and became one of his editors uh, and like trusted collaborators. So Spike and I, uh, again, have had a longstanding relationship. He means a great deal to me. He's had a tremendous impact on my life. And um, yeah, he he basically put me in a position to, to tell Derek's story. Uh, Derek and Spike are also longtime friends. And I think from what I've been told that if Derek had ever decided to do something like this, he wanted Spike to do it. Obviously the longstanding relationship and Spike is a legend. Um, and yeah, Spike, Spike said that he wasn't able to do it because he had prior commitments, but he said he had the perfect guy um, to tell the story. And I just happened to be that guy. So I'm very appreciative uh, of Spike and Derek. If he, Next time you talk to Spike, can you tell him he still owes me a piece of gum? Um, I, I, was, I don't well I don't know if I told you in 1996 I'm pretty sure it was game one of the world series I was working as a producer at FAN and I was on the field watching batting practice and we're set up behind the batting cage all the actions on the cage I think we're on the warning track at old Yankee Stadium behind the batting cage and I find myself there's all so much media and different people around and all of a sudden I looked over and Spike Lee is just standing right next to me and I'm going oh my gosh Right. And like, I'm trying to figure out what to say to him. Like, he doesn't know me. He isn't, you know, no reason to know me. And I'm looking at him. And I just go, that's pretty cool. Huh? And he looks at me, he goes, you have another piece of gum. I, was like, I guess I was doing gum. So I reached in my pocket, I gave him a piece of gum. I was like, all right, cool. And like, that was it. Like, I mean, you know, I, I'm pretty sure he could have afforded his own gum, but he had to take one off of me. So please tell him next time um, you, you talk to him. He owes me a piece of gum with 26 years of interest. That's whatever that I got you. Is, all right? I got you. Um, listen, Derek Jeter is very popular and a very charismatic figure. I think we all know that, but he was also not very colorful in the media. I think people around him know what kind of character he was and could be, but for somebody who didn't want to portray that publicly during his very private life, uh, why would you as a filmmaker find him an appealing project? Because I think the challenge is trying to reveal that character to the rest of the world. You know, it, it is there. I mean, Sweeney, you, you know yeah. uh, what's, what's behind all of it. And I think the challenge and, and the thing that makes this so compelling is, is to bring that out of him and to show the rest of the world that this actually exists, that the um, perception and persona that he had publicly for those 20 years as a Yankee isn't a true reflection of who he is as a human being and as a man. So um, I know that there was a lot under the surface. I know that Derek was ready to reveal a lot of that to the world. So as a filmmaker, you know, you want to, you want to be challenged. You want to find a story that other people can't tell or tell it in a way that others haven't. So with Derek, it was very clear, you know, to present this part of his humanity and his personality and share it with the rest of the world. 
All right. So in your conversations with him leading up to really just starting this and getting going, what were those conversations like? What did you want to get across to him? What did he want to get across to you? How much of it was you want to say, listen, this is my movie. Uh, you know, like I, I need to have certain, you know, authorities on certain things. Like how, how did that relationship work as you had the conversations with him leading up to it? I think he knew that in order for this to work, he was going to have to talk about certain topics. Um, so I think he probably had conversations with his wife, Hannah. I'm sure he had conversations with uh, his agent, Casey Close. I think that this was something that was brewing with him for a while before I got there. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of convincing that I had to do because it, it felt like he understood what the importance of this was and what the foundational pieces needed to be in order for this to work. Um, we had like blunt conversations, but they were good conversations. There was never any tension. There was never any conflict. We were, we were always in alignment. You know, I, I tell people that the first time I, I spoke with Derek, it felt like I knew him for 10 years already. Um, so we were always in alignment and I know that there were some things that, uh, you know, at first I think he was reticent to like speak totally freely about, but by the time that we were done, I think he and I were both surprised at how much he had actually talked about them. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there were just like honest conversations, but there were collaborative, creative conversations. I think it helps that Derek is also a storyteller. You know, he has the Players Tribune. He has his publishing company. I think stories are important to Derek beyond the film. You know, this isn't something that's foreign to him. So I think he intrinsically understands what makes a good story. So I think that also helps. So, yeah, there were great conversations. Uh, There was never at any point where we had a conflict or like we saw things differently. We were always in lockstep. Um, I was always respectful of the fact that, you know, he is private and he does believe in protecting his loved ones. So going into it, um, I was very aware of that. I didn't want to violate that. You know, I think that that's important. Um, You know, you don't want to go to a point where you, you lose Derek and then he kind of shuts down. Um, and I think that's true for anyone. It would be true if I did a film on you. I think that there's certain things that you have to respect um, for the subject to make sure that they're comfortable and you earn their trust and keep their trust. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a great process. I learned a lot and um, I'm very thankful that, you know, Derek was as open as he as he was in the film. The the nine part series on my life is coming out next summer. I believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, as you got to him on things that were, let's just say, let's just call it controversial for lack of a better term. Okay. Um, did you find it that you, there was some convincing to get him to open up more? Or did you feel like he knew this was his opportunity to tell his side of that story and he wanted to do it? Yeah. And I, and I mentioned that to him, you know, I, I said, this is probably one of the rare opportunities where you can influence the narrative instead of other people influencing the narrative. Like, and I don't mean that to say that like he was um, controlling of the situation. Again, it was a collaboration, but I mean, it's his story. You know, he can, he can kind of take control of it in a way where there isn't a, a middleman or middle woman. Like what he says is on record, you know, and it can come from him. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think he he understood that he embraced it and it was more like, OK, yeah, I'm going to tell my side of the story. And then, you know, whatever the reception or reaction is, so be it. But, but you know, it was an opportunity to kind of use his platform to his advantage.
here's here's a guy who you know he didn't lack for publicity during the course of his career, right? So when did you feel like you had broken new ground? Like you had found something that okay, I'm going to be able to do something here that just hasn't been part of the story before. Honestly, the first interview it was even the way that he sat in a chair. Really, you know, it was like little things like that where you could tell that he was comfortable, and I think that you know. He, he knew that he was in an environment where he wasn't being judged or someone was trying to exploit him or take advantage of him. I think that naturally Derek's inclination is to ask someone he doesn't really know or know well, what do you want from me? Like, what are you trying to get out of this? He even says that think, at one point in the show. Yeah, exactly. And I think in this situation, he knew that that wasn't happening. He knew why we were there. He knew that it was to have a conversation and that, you know, he can open up as much as he felt comfortable doing so. So I think it was the way he sat in the chair. It was when he cursed on yeah. camera. <laughs> yeah. Throws uh, you off. yeah. Oh yeah. Totally throws you off. Like every time he like uses profanity, I'm still thrown off by it. Um, and I think that there were certain details to things that people were aware of that he started to share when it was like, and I'm saying they're like, okay, we have something here, you know, like, um, he talks about the contract situation with Cashman and the Yankees and uh, was after the 2010 season. Um, he talks about his relationship with the media, why he did it, but with more like detail and reasoning behind it. So from the first interview, I knew that we had something really good. All right. So I'm actually uh, just now that you mentioned it, the fact that he does curse and a lot, right. And kind of casually during the course of this, Yeah. why like, he knows this is a show. He knows all the people are going to see this. So why was this part of it? Like that's really in direct contrast to the image he has crafted. And he's obviously a family man now. And that's part of his story and his appeal and his image. So why, why do you think that's part of this show that he, that he does drop the F bombs as much as he does? Because I also think that's part of who he is. Yeah. You know, like I, I think that, you know, he has this public, persona and a perception that goes along with it but there again there's more to him than just you know the the uh very measured uh public personality of Derek Jeter there's more to him he curses you know he he does those things so I think it's another side that he was comfortable and ready to share with the world so I think you know that he's he's a very complex guy and I mean that in a very complimentary way um, I think he has a lot of nuance. He's incredibly intelligent. He's very observant. Um, he's aware, you know, he's engaged. And I think that that engagement allows him to open up and shows that he has this very like diverse personality, you know, and, and has strong feelings about a lot of things. So I think that's why he did it. You know, it's just another side of who he is. All right. So uh, when you, when you watch the credits in this, you understand right away that it's, it's, you know, um, Excel Entertainment, which is his agency, the Casey Close runs. It's the Players Tribune. His imprint is on this. So how much editorial control, final approval type of things did he have over what the rest of the what the audience is going to end up watching? Uh, he he had edited. I don't know if control is the right word because he uh, there's no final cut. He didn't. I mean, ESPN had final cut, you know, they're the network. So um Ultimately, the buck kind of stops with them uh, in many ways. Uh, Major League Baseball is also a part of this. And 
um, the Yankees had to to watch this, you know. So I think that it was kind of like a multifaceted kind of final cut, uh, if you will. But yeah, I mean, Derek watched the cuts. Derek watched it to help us make sure that we were accurate, that um, we weren't like missing details or misrepresenting details. I think that that's very important. You know, he obviously had those experiences. So I think part of it was making sure that like we had everything in order. Um, but again, honestly, it was collaboration. I mean, I, I, there, there weren't many moments where it felt like, you know, it was like this heavy handed experience to like get something across. I mean, that, that really didn't happen. I think that, you know, it was, there were notes like I would get from the network, you know what I mean? So it was like, uh, there wasn't anything that was out of the ordinary that I wouldn't expect if you were just dealing with, with any network giving you notes or an executive giving you notes. So it, it was all part of the process. There was nothing uh, different or heavy handed about it. I think we were all trying to tell the best story we could possibly tell. And Derek was a part of that, but there wasn't um, a situation where we were mandated to do something or like told that we had to do X, Y, and Z or say X, Y, and Z. Um, they were just like any other notes, to be quite honest. I think there was one part, and I forget the exact story. Uh, I've seen a few of the episodes uh, through the screeners that the, they're kind enough to send out. He tells one story and says, like, oh, this probably isn't going to make it. And it's obviously in it. Like, and, and he says it kind of like, like, it's almost like he, and I forget the, I forget what story it was, but it was kind of like he's embarrassed to actually talk about it and hope <laughs> yeah. nobody else uh, sees this. But clearly that's in there. Was there anything that he you know, he told you that I, I don't want to talk because there are a couple of things in there that he finally does address. Uh, and, you know, I'll get into one of them. But is there anything he said, you know, listen, I don't want to talk about that. And you were left to some other parts of other people to maybe tell that story or leave it out altogether. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast 
You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I guess the only thing would really be like the super intricate details of his bachelor life. Mm-hmm. That, you know, But even then, again, he didn't say, we can't talk about it. It was more like, I have three daughters. You know what I mean? And I've, I'm married. You know yeah. what I mean? It was, in, it was in a context that makes total sense. Uh-huh. Um, so I think he's at a different stage in his life where certain things just don't have importance or like honest, like relevance to where he is at, in this stage of his, of his life. So um, I would, I would say like the intricate details of his bachelor life might be the one thing, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't a mandate. Like we didn't sit down and he said, don't talk about this. We can't talk about that. Yeah. It just kind of naturally came along and made sense. And quite honestly, like some of those things as a storyteller don't really go anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no, there's no controversy attached to it. There's no conflict. There's no, we make mention of him enjoying being yeah. a star. Yeah. You know? I mean, like we get into that for sure. But mm-hmm. um, like the nitty gritty, like rumor stuff or like, you know, kind of like sensational stuff we stay away from. So there's two elements to this that I'd like to uh, talk to you about. You know, first of all, I think he's probably the first superstar who played every single game on television, you know, because when his career starts in the mid nineties, there are still teams that don't have all 162 on TV. We're at a place now where that is, that is true. Every game is on TV, but I think he was the first superstar who played every single game on like Mickey Mantle. There are games that, you know, weren't on TV, Joe DiMaggio, they weren't on TV. Um, So he's one of those guys. uh, And I would say like along those lines, Mike Trout is probably the first superstar in this sport who uh, played every game in the social media age where people are dissecting every single night. Um, But I don't know that he recognized that that was true of him, but he's probably aware of it. Does that make sense to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, he might not articulate it because he might not, as you said, be aware that that was what was going on to him. It was just like, I'm playing baseball. There are cameras here. There's media that this just comes with the job. Um, But I will say one of the most fascinating things about making this film was the evolution of the formats in which the coverage uh, was captured. Yeah. So like we have SD, we have film, 16 millimeter film. There's the, uh, you know, HD starting to come along. Then it's like full blown HD. So like he played for so long that the actual (laughs) formats that captured his career changed multiple times, you know, and, and, it was fascinating to see that, you know, like in uh, episodes three and four, I believe we have way more like 16 millimeter footage than we did prior to those uh, episodes and after those episodes. Um, and on a technical level, you know, it presents a challenge because you're presenting the film in, in one format. But like while you're making it, it's, it's just incredible to see just how many ways this was his career was captured over the years. The uh, the other element of that, and you kind of mentioned it with what is his family life, family life now. You know, he's married with three three daughters. His kids never saw him play. Okay, he had that part of his life after his career. So, um, do you think he eventually wants them to? I mean, obviously they're too young for this now. But do you think part of making this and the way that it was made, he would like them to watch it at at whatever appropriate age, so that they know like 
who he was publicly because he is somebody else to the rest of the world? That is the number one reason why he decided to make this. Yeah. I mean, his, I think people will learn from this film how much he loves being a dad and how important family really is to him and how uh, crucial Hannah and his daughters are to his life now. So I think, well, not I think, I know the main reason he wanted to do this was so his life and career were chronicled so that they could see it later. He's not totally convinced they're ever going to watch this <laughs> sure. you know, at any age yeah. um, or believe him. But that, that was the main reason and, and motivating factor for him wanting to do this. And I think that also contributes to him being open. I think he wants his daughters to know who he is, what made him, who his family is, who their family are. So, yeah, it's a, a major contributing uh, factor. Okay, so beyond that, he was always a less is more kind of guy when it comes to the access and the and and what he was willing to provide to people. But now, you know, now he's on social media. Now he's being that dad who's, you know, his his wife is phoning him in the car, interacting with with his kids, and they're posting that kind of stuff. Now I understand there's a lot of promotional aspect to now him being on social media, but I mean, are you surprised that we got here? How did we get here? I don't know how we got here, to be quite <laughs> honest. Uh, I I am surprised because when I first met Derek and talked to Derek, he he said, yeah, I'm never doing this social media thing. Like, it's just not happening. Um, and then, you know, a year or two later, he's on social media. And I think he genuinely enjoys it. Like, yeah. you know, I, I think he I think he sees the positive sides of it. You know, he um, I think he sees that, you know, people are genuinely excited to learn more about him and like hear his daughter in the back of the car talking about poopy monsters and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that like the promotional aspect is one reason, but I don't think that that's like the driving force behind it. I think he understanding that, you know, I, I made this film, I'm going to be out there anyway. Like what's the way to like continue that. And I think, Again, he's in a different stage of his life. You know, he's not under the microscope anymore being Derek Jeter, face of the New York Yankees. And I think that he's probably a little bit more relaxed, you know, and I think he's comfortable um, sharing a little bit more about himself for his day to day. And I, I think I genuinely think he's having fun with social media. Um, and I think it's a great thing. I think people people always wanted to be closer to Derek. And I think in a very sincere way, I think there are a lot of people that just wanted to know more about him because they revered him. They liked him. Um, they, they're inspired by him. So I think, uh, I think it was a great move. I'm happy that he did it. And I'm happy that people were excited and, and engaging with him. I actually do remember having conversations with him like early in the days of, of Twitter and like him wondering why anybody on earth would want to just put stuff because he only saw the bad side of it. He only saw yeah. the, the downward spiral that could happen when you say something wrong, um, you know, in that format and what could happen. Um, the A-Rod relationship is a very big part of this. And I think you'd actually do a great job of leading us up to that because we all know it's coming and you kind of tease it along the way until you get to the big crux of it when he gets traded and all with the Esquire article, when he gets traded over and all, everything that happened after that. Um, you know, it's, and I thought they were both really honest with you. It was really cool to see, especially because they both tried to downplay that as aspect of it to us while it was happening. 
And they didn't say we were lying, but they did kind of tell us that we were making too much out of it. And it's pretty clear now that we weren't making too much out of it. There was a lot of stuff there. Everything that we kind of said was going on really was true. They were just doing their best to protect themselves and their team and their families, I guess, from everything that was happening. So um, I, I did get the sense that Alex, you know, has some regrets, even though he's still kind of, you know, he owns up to it. I don't think he, you know, thinks he made full blown mistakes, but I think he feels like he he does have some regrets. Derek doesn't really seem to fully want to admit regrets easily in any any part of it. Do you think any part of what happened there that he does genuinely regret and thinks that that, that he made any sort of mistakes along the way? I think a lot of things come down to trust. With Derek, mm-hmm. not just with Alex, but just in life. Yeah. And I think that trusting people, whether they were teammates or not, is a big part of the equation for him. And I think that he looks at things not through regret or not regret, but can I trust this person? Mm-hmm. And I think when he decides that he can't trust you, it is very hard for him to get away from that. I mean, I think. In the film, he says he looks at it almost as a character flaw. So he's he's self-aware that that's what's going on. Yeah. But he also has reason. And I'm not saying it's directed towards Alex. I think, you know, his upbringing being biracial and people like questioning like who, who he is, who his family is. I think that has a profound impact on him. Um, so I think for, for Derek, it's not necessarily a regret. I think looking back, he would probably say, and he does say this actually in a film that, you know, he could have trusted teammates more and that it could have been his responsibility to be more entrusting of a larger circle of teammates. So I think that's the closest thing you would get to Derek saying that there may be a regret there. Um, but I don't, I don't think Derek views his life in a, in a prism of regret or no regret. I think it's trust, loyalty, and operating off of those values so I think maybe there was a point uh, that he looks back and he says, I should have trusted Alex more as a teammate or embraced him more. I'm not totally sure. I don't, I'm not convinced that that's how Derek looks at it with Alex specifically. Sure. I think for Derek, Alex won MVPs. He played well for the Yankees. So it was like, well, if he did a, a great job, you know, what was I going to do to change it? Yeah. You know, Derek looks at it very specific in terms of how Alex contributed to winning. So I guess that's a roundabout way of saying I don't think Derek actually has regrets. I think he just looks at things in the prism of can I trust this person, yes or no, and that's how I'm going to move forward. I think there's an interesting part of this relationship, too, that I don't know if you touched on this and and built it into this on purpose or if I just see it because I've always thought it was an underplayed element and I kind of paid attention to this detail. Um, They have two drastically different upbringings, and I think we don't when we talk about the mistakes Alex makes and, you know, the quote unquote perfect way Derek handled things for so many, for so many years um, with his being in the public eye, I think we underplayed that he has, you know, he has two college educated parents and Alex had a single mom who works, you know, two or three jobs, you know, that's, that's drastically different experience that shapes who they are. And I, I kind of felt like we underplayed that over the years. I, I thought you touched on it. Was that intentional or was that kind of just how the story played out? Uh, no, it was, it, 
it was both because yeah. I didn't go into it knowing exactly what Alex was going to reveal. Okay. Um, you know, I didn't really know how far he was going to take it until he actually sat in the chair and started answering questions. So it wasn't intentional going into it, but once he revealed that stuff, I thought it was an interesting dynamic that also fell into themes of the entire film about family, uh, emotional maturity on Derek's part. I mean, I just think that Derek was rare in the sense that he was way more mature than his age. Yeah. And I think that that showed itself in so many different ways. And I don't necessarily look at it as a fault of Alex, but if you're a superstar 2021, 20, I mean, yeah. most people won't handle it the way that Derek did. I think that that's incredibly rare. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was a clash of, of maturity at that age understanding perception um a global perspective that i think Derek has that is also rare uh for someone so young i don't think alex had that i think it's fair to say that um so yeah i mean i think there are a lot of elements to it i'm happy we were able to to add that layer to the conversation so it's not just this well they didn't like each other you know there's there's way more to it there was way more nuance and i think that we captured that pretty well You've gotten to show this to a few different audiences already. So, I mean, you've had a chance to not just make it, but you've seen it. You've watched other people react to it. What are, what's some of the experience that you took away from that of watching, uh, you know, watching, um, you know, Derek, his family, some other people, the audience, the Yankee Stadium, all those kinds of things. That, that the story's landing. I mean, uh, you, just, you just always hope that when you make a film that people get it you know, that they get the nuance, they get the, the storytelling, they get like the hints about Alex and then that, that build. You just hope that you do a good enough job where people are, are along for the ride and they understand what you're trying to tell. Um, and in every instance so far, people just get it. And like, that's the biggest compliment a filmmaker can have. Um, so yeah, it's been great. What did, uh, what did Derek say to you when it was, you know, like when he, when he watched everything, when you guys kind of put the wraps on it, what did he tell you? I mean, I think in very Derek fashion, he, he said, you know, I just hope people love it. You know, he didn't even, it wasn't even about like how he felt about it. He, I mean, he really likes the film. He's proud of it, all of those things. But the first thing is, I just hope people love it, you know. So he's always thinking about others, thinking about the fans, thinking about the audience. So uh, it was a very Derek response. And I, I guess I wouldn't expect anything else. All right. So what's next for you? What's on deck for, for your projects? I don't know. I'm talking to a couple of people. Um, there's some interesting projects out there. You know, I tried to play the long game and take a bet on myself like Aaron Judge uh, <laughs> and and not fully commit to something until this comes out. So I'm close, close to doing that. Um, I'm in talks for a couple of projects, so uh, we'll see. But um, it'll be good regardless. It'll be something uh, that people can sink their teeth into. All right. Um, I can't let you go without, you know, you're a very active presence on Twitter during every Yankees game, right? <laughs> yep. You're a Yankees fan and you are, you're enjoying this year. I know. Um, <laughs> and, and you've actually taken a very, you know, I try to take a level-headed approach with, with my coverage and what I'm watching. And in this particular season, I feel like you've done a lot of that because, you know, the team is really good. And even when they lose, like they did the last couple of days, you're not you're not bouncing off the walls. You you see what's happening. Give me your halfway point and uh, you know assessment of what you see from the Yankees and what you're looking forward to as we head into head into fall. I think they're obviously a true title contender. I think that they have all the ingredients to make it work. 
I also think that it's clear that they have some holes that they need to address. And I think that they need a little bit more depth in the outfield, uh, definitely in the rotation. I feel like this is the one year where I feel like I'm pretty convinced that they can win the title. I mean, I, I, yeah. I feel very strongly about it, but I think they have to go for it. And I think Cashman will. I think that there's there's some spots where they can shore it up a little bit. Um, and I think this trade deadline is going to tell a lot about where they can go and what their true potential is. I also think right now they, and you can tell me maybe better than anybody, they just look tired. You know, sure. Yeah, like, there's a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, listen, you're you're gonna go through, and, and honestly, I just did this this math last night after the game, Thursday night after the game. Um, in their last 24, they're 13 and 11, which isn't a. I mean, you know, you'd think no. they were like you know five and 19 the way people talk about them, but I mean, they've actually gained ground in the division by going 13 and 11 because everybody else right. has kind of played with them. They've lost a little bit of ground to Houston, and that's you know where you're talking about the home field. That's where that's important. But listen, it's not supposed to be easy, right? They make it look easy sometimes. And listen, you probably and you talk to all these guys who played on 98, and you know, and with Derek and everything like that. And I think you know, I don't know. You tell me, did your appreciation for how a team goes through a season like this uh did that change based off of all the people you talked to who made the winning look easy even when it wasn't yeah and that's actually a major reason why one I am feel very strongly they can win this year and two that um they have just the kind of right makeup there are a lot of guys from that 98 team that said that one reason they were so successful is because they were committed to winning every game, every night, yeah. and they wanted to impose their will on the opposition. And I feel like this team is finally doing that. I think that, you know, even when they lose, they're close games. Like yeah. They're not just like they're competing until the end. They believe that they can come back. Even last night, uh, Thursday night against the Reds, they were one run away from, from tying the game again. So, um, that was very similar to 98. And one thing that Derek has told me repeatedly, both for the 98 team and for this year's team, is how you deal with adversity. And that's how you know that you have, like, what it takes to be a champion. Can you weather the adversity and how are you going to respond to it? And I think even with the adversity, quote, unquote, that the Yankees have dealt with so far this year, I mean, they still handle it incredibly well. So I feel very confident. But I also want to be mindful that, you know, there's some work to, to be done. My thanks again to Randy Wilkins. The first episode of The Captain airs on ESPN this Monday, 10 p.m. after the Home Run Derby. Future episodes air every Thursday through August 11th. Check your listings for replays, also streaming on ESPN+. Hey, if you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at Odyssey, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Go back and check out recent episodes with Howard Bryant, author of the new Ricky Henderson biography. Or Paul O'Neill about his new book that he wrote with Jack Curry. Also check out the WFA and Baseball Insiders podcast for more baseball and Yankees related talk. Make sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the most anticipated WNBA season in history. And you know what that means. Court is back in session. Welcome to Queens of the Court, an Odyssey original podcast. I'm your girl, Cheryl Swoop, And I'm Jordan Robinson. All WNBA season long, we'll be bringing you interviews with star athletes, analysis on your favorite teams, and lots of hot takes. Order, order in the court. Follow and listen to Queens of the Court on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.